Hi, CityCast listeners. It's Lisa. Today, we have got something really special for y'all. Our friends at the Houston Chronicle make a great podcast. Texas Take examines Texas politics in depth every week. And I think y'all are really going to like this week's episode. Well, it looks like a tightening race for governor, but it is only July. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and Jeremy Wallace is here as well. You can always find his work at HoustonChronicle.com, and he is always working. When I say always, Jeremy, I mean literally always. You, you uh, thought you would have an extended weekend, but that didn't I happen. I was just trying to get down the Whiskey River with Willie Nelson, you know, catch a little tunes, and there Beto O'Rourke, yeah. running for governor, jumps up on stage, and immediately I have to start tweeting into my account and start writing a freaking story uh, about the governor's race. Can't I even get Whiskey River all to myself? <laughs> no, apparently you cannot. But on the on the plus side, and I think you said something about this on social media, d- does that mean that you can expense the tickets that you bought for the concert? I mean, it, sa- it sounds like a work expense to me. It sounds fair. Like, you know, so I'm working with my editors on this. You know, it's like, come on. You know, it's like, you know, they got front row photography of Beto O'Rourke on my Twitter, you know, playing with Willie Nelson. Come on. Nobody else has that shot. Only this political reporter. (laughs) Right. If it makes a difference, tell them I endorse the idea that you should be reimbursed for those tickets. Um, Let's start right there with the governor's race, Uh, a tightening race, according to the polls. And, you know, we always say, Jeremy, a couple of things about polls. One, they are not predictors of the future. It's just a diagnostic tool to try to tell campaigns and the rest of us what's going on with the race right now. That's that's number one. Number two, you never read too much into one poll. But we now have a series of polls that show that you do have something that looks uh, like a more competitive race for governor in Texas than we've seen in a long time. Is that right? Yes. If we're getting the polling right. Right. You know, it's like that's always a big question about <laughs> Texas polling because like it's been hard trying to kind of for the polling to catch up with where Texas is. You know, all the polling was <laughs> way off kilter at this time four years ago. These all polls oh, sure. kind of, you know, they give us a general framework of where we are. And it, it's the inside numbers within the polls, you know, of course, you know, where Beto and Abbott are one thing, but really the attitudes of, of voters on all the different kinds of issues really are mm-hmm. kind of, you know, help tell us a lot. Yeah, here's how this uh, latest poll from the University of Texas at their uh, politics project, here's how it was covered on KHOU television in Houston. Incumbent Republican Governor Greg Abbott is losing ground to Democrat Beto O'Rourke with just a six-point lead. Among registered voters, 45% support Abbott to 39% supporting O'Rourke. The poll was conducted after the Uvalde school shooting and included voter opinions on guns, abortion, and the direction of the state. So it's not surprising at all that that polling is tightening for both both candidates. A majority of Texas voters, 52%, support stricter gun laws. 78% support a universal background check system. 75% express support for raising the age to buy a gun. 66% express support for red flag laws. Texans and voters specifically want our communities and our schools, our grocery stores, our movie theaters. They want where they live to be safe. Now that last voice you heard was Jamar Brown. He's with the Texas Democratic Party, and he was talking to KHOU reporter Gerald Harris. Now, to the point you were making, Jeremy, about what's inside the poll, the, the numbers that are are focused on attitudes about things much more interesting to me than the horse race numbers. Oh, look, you know, I think people overthink all this uh, when they go, oh, look, it's a six point race. 
if all politics, let me put this to you. If all politics is nationalized now, and it sure seems that way across a whole host of issues, right? If all politics is nationalized, should it surprise any of us that the Republican and the Democrat in the race for governor are separated by the same margin as Biden and Trump were in Texas? Good point. <laughs> right. Okay. So James Henson runs the Texas Politics Project over at UT, and uh, they did the poll. He was asked on KVU television in Austin about why this race looks the way it does right now. Well, I mean, I think some of it is in the poll and some of it is just sort of in the ether. Um, in the poll, one of the things that, that we saw that really uh, recurred throughout this particular poll is that Texans are in incredibly negative mood about incumbents, about economic conditions, about the direction of the state. I think one of the most telling results in this poll is that when we asked Texans whether they thought the state was, you know, on the, you know, uh, headed in the right direction or off on the wrong track, the wrong track number was 59%, which is um, as high as we've seen it since we started doing this poll in 2008. So. There's an enormous amount of negative energy out there. Virtually everybody's um, job approval ratings from Joe Biden down to the Texas legislature um, and, and, to the, and to Congress, everybody's job approval ratings were down in this poll. So I, I think there is a, a, a real simmering dissatisfaction out there but it's frankly kind of reaching a boil, and I think that it, it hurt all incumbents. So I don't necessarily think that uh, Jim Henson is wrong when he says that that's now splashing onto the incumbents, that people are upset with anybody in office. How many times have we heard previously in various election cycles that the whole attitude right now is throw the bums out? And we've seen that over and over again, right? Go back to um, 1994 when all the Democrats got turned out in Congress, right? And they had the big Republican wave. Same thing in 2010. Uh, you had a similar thing happen, when was it? Uh, in 06, when yeah. the Democrats fought back. Uh, and and as uh, uh, President Bush at the time said, uh, the Republicans took a Texas thumping. So it's not the first time that you know incumbents have been under fire. You do see this over and over again in Texas, Jeremy, where people are upset with what's going on. But at the end of the day, as you get to you know close to November, People put their partisan jersey on, and there just happen to be more Republican voters than Democratic ones, and that's the way the election works out. And I, and I think something interesting in this poll is that even though folks don't seem to like the governor, Greg Abbott, all that much, at least you know not right now, it looks like they're still going to vote for him. Yeah, the, the numbers still show a very good environment for Republicans going into the fall, despite, you know, it's like I know a lot of Democrats are sitting there going, you know, with all these protests in the streets about the Supreme Court ruling and the after the shooting of Uvalde, has this changed kind of the dynamic? Well, not really. It's like it, to some degree it's energized a, a certain portion of the base, uh, but it still looks like a good you know, cycle for Republicans, even here in Texas. Uh, but, but you know, go, building off of what Henson was talking about there with that, you know, it's all about the timing of the poll too, right? You sit there and go, you know, these, right. these questions are being asked when inflation and gas prices are, you know, through the roof. You know, you've all these ha you know, just happened. Uh, the abortion ruling has come down or it was about to come down, you know, when they were you know finishing up the polling. And then, uh, 
that you know then of course the border it has this you know seemingly every day there's a you know story about the surge of migrants at some portion of the border so you have a lot of stuff going on that could upset both republicans and democrats and you know a pox in mm-hmm. all their houses type stuff right and so you can kind of feel that negative energy and i get that you know i'll be interested to see where that is when we get you know closer into the fall right and who knows what we'll be thinking about in October, I was uh, reflecting this morning on the fact that, you know, with so many huge, just uh, it's monumental developments this summer, uh, do you get emails from people uh, and they start by saying, it's always the joke uh, that, uh, that no, your email did not find me well. Um, people will send emails and it always says, I ho- lately for me, it always says, I hope you're getting a restful summer. And I, <laughs> I say, well, what is that? There's no restful summer. Um, I was reflecting on the fact that th- there are so many giant developments in in the news, in in our society, in in this country, and in the world that almost nothing we can say and write about these things meets the moment. Is as big as the moment, right? It's very difficult to to cover this stuff and really put it in perspective for people. Um, and if you look at those uh, those giant things uh, when it comes to abortion, when it comes to gun violence, when it comes to all the uh, it comes to the border, whatever it is, um, who knows which of those things is in in the economy? Of course, which of those things is going to be top of mind for people right as they go to vote? And sometimes, Jeremy, we've seen it in the past where we thought it was going to be one thing. And guess what? Suddenly it's an election that's dominated by the fact that there's a pandemic. Yep. But we didn't we didn't have any idea, you know, in the beginning of that year that that's what we'd be dealing with. Well, it reminds me a lot of 2008. You know, remember in 2008 when John McCain was running for president, the first half of the year, it was all about Iraq and who could, you know, handle, you know, Iraq, you know, more than, you know, you right. know, than Obama. Right. And then McCain looked mm-hmm. good. And then the economy cratered <laughs> and everybody was looking for somebody who really right. could talk about the economy. And that's where the Democrats kind of took the baton and ran off. You know, so it's like you just don't know what this electorate's going to look like or what's going to motivate people to get to the polls until we get closer to the fight. You know, right now people can say what they will, but you know, who will climb over glass to get to the polls to vote for X when we get to starting mm. in September. Also interesting in these polls, John Cornyn, his numbers had been holding steady and then just plummeted uh, in this latest round of polling. Uh, and I heard uh, a discussion earlier this week where someone was saying, well, that's because of the guns, right? Well, yes. <laughs> That's the easiest explanation is that he was the guy, the Republican lead in the discussions on gun safety legislation in D.C. Now, you remember, because you and I were both there, Jeremy, he was nearly booed off the stage at the Texas GOP convention in Houston. And then you had former President Trump calling him a rhino. Right around that time, Cornyn was asked, does he, does he let any of this stuff really get to him as he's trying to do his job? Well, if I listened to all of the critics, uh, I wouldn't get much done. Um, I think uh, those were obviously a very small fringe of, uh, of the Republican primary voters. Somebody uh, indicated it was like four-tenths of one percent of uh, people who voted in the 2020 primary where I got 76 percent of the vote. Is Donald Trump fringe? Um, well, I just think, you know, I, I think name calling is not particularly helpful. Uh, it's just uh, I think 
if we're going to have a debate about policy, and I'm all for that, but I'm not going to engage in a, in a game of uh, name calling. I don't think that serves anybody's interest. And then the other reporters tried to ask him some other questions. I love the Duck and Dodgen uh, from Republicans whenever they will be asked about uh, the name calling from former President Trump and ask him or ask about him and say, is he uh, somebody who is fringe? If you look at the numbers, Jeremy, it is a pretty bad uh, uh number for Cornyn. It's 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 to collapse. So his his disapproval rating went from 39 up to 50 percent in that same uh, Texas politics project poll. Uh, but look, the political reality for Cornyn is very different. Um, he is not up for reelection for what, five years. Uh, and uh, you've got uh, plenty of time, as we were just saying, for other things to be on folks' mind the next time he might be on the ballot. I mean, people may not even remember this uh, gun bill, which, of course, the bill that uh, was passed, people have good things to say about it, bad things to say about it, as he and the Democratic lead in the discussions, uh, the Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, they both acknowledged that this is a bill that that people are going to either say doesn't do enough or other people who were booing Cornyn at the Texas GOP convention, they would say it does too much. They were calling him a traitor. But because of where he is positioned, not just on the calendar as far as reelection, but also being somebody who's in Senate leadership on the Republican side, he's the guy who Jeremy can take the heat on this when others who are on the ballot, like Greg Abbott, like Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and others who who might be privately saying, I'm glad they did something on guns because people are kind of mad about this. But Cornyn's the one who can run right out there and, and deal with it. And as he told us, uh, or as he told uh, several people uh, at the convention, he said, look, I don't give in to mobs and I'm not about to start doing that right now. I wonder if he would say the same thing if he was on the ballot this year. Yeah, he's definitely in a different spot. Like he doesn't have to worry necessarily uh, immediately about the ballot. But you know, you know, look, Senator Cornyn like knows this game well at this point. You know, he's been a senator since two thousand or two thousand two, I think. Uh, it's like so he's been there for a long time, and I think in, in this yeah. case, like he knows like this is important if if. You know, as we start thinking about the leadership of the U.S. Senate, if Republicans do take control, he's going to want to roll, you know, in all of that. Right. You know, so he's positioning himself by doing this. So he has a motive to kind of get involved in this issue and reach across the aisle and look like a leader. So he's got that you know, checked off. That said, the, 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 the drop in the poll is really like left me breathless. I have not seen that happen much. You know, it's like, you know, I dare you to find anybody in two months who has gone from being, you know, having one of the lowest dis disapproval ratings in the state, you know, you know, like he was way you know below where all the other Republicans were in the state. And now he is the absolutely the most disapproved, you know, uh, uh, person in politics in the Republican Party, he is now has a higher disapproval rating than uh, than Ted Cruz, you know, Greg Abbott, Dan mm -hmm. Patrick, Ken Paxton. You know, and for what? For working on this bipartisan legislation, as like it is hard to right. see any other reason. And so it's it's kind of a sad moment in a lot of ways because it tells politicians like you're best not taking a risk and working with the other side. It's like you will be safer if you just kind of stick in your lane. Because what was interesting about that polling was it wasn't just like, you know, Cornyn's number, you know, absolutely cratered with Republicans. Like we saw that. But the thing is, his yeah, right. numbers, his disapproval numbers went up with independents and Democrats, too. And you sit right. there, you just start scratching your head. Like even the Democrats and independents were like on, 
we don't like whatever you were involved in. And so we're going to, you know, be even more against you. Well, just anecdotally, um, you know, in speaking with Democrats around the state from Central Texas, DFW, Houston, San Antonio, wherever, I kept hearing from people who were saying that, you know, liberal Democrats who were saying that this Cornyn thing is he's just trying to the way they would put it. He's just trying to, you know, uh, pull the wool over everybody's eyes that this bill doesn't really do anything and it's worthless. And and they would rather have them do. And there's to your point, they would rather have them do nothing. Uh, And this is sort of the attitude in politics right now when you have what they call negative partisanship, which is something that Henson has talked about, uh, the the professor at UT, um, the idea that you hate the other side more than you even like your side. And that's happening with Republicans and Democrats right now. And so the idea that you would go in and try to compromise with anybody, um, if you you, uh, ask the Tea Party type people, the MAGA type people, the far left AOC types, all of them would say a version of this. I'd rather have it all or nothing. Yeah. Right. They want everything that they want, 100 percent agreement on everything that they believe or nothing. And so when you deliver something, which is what uh, Murphy and Cornyn did, well, then they hate them even worse because they did because because something is not all or nothing. It's the thing in between. And and nobody wants that. Well, and, and just think about it. It's like, and again, trying to put this, wrap my head around this, you know, for the first time in 30 years, the Congress did something about guns. In America, it's yeah. like it's really landmark type stuff, and the electorate, even in Texas, is punishing John Cornyn for it. You know, look, a couple of years from now, people won't even remember any of this happened. You know, like we talked about how these news right. cycles just fly. You know, by the end of the year, make, yes. heck, by the end of August, people will probably have forgotten about a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But you know, but right now, it's just like it just looks like the the terrible moral to this story is. You know, don't go walking out and taking some risk politically if you want to get reelected. Yeah, if you're a Republican, the last thing you want to do is be seen with known Democrats. Yeah. Um, of course, this this entire debate about guns uh, really uh, sparked by the shooting in Uvalde. Of course, we had had a series of shootings, including in Buffalo and other places. And uh, it was the Uvalde situation, which continues to unfold. And we continue to see more and more questions than answers, really, about actually what happened that day, Jeremy, during the massacre. Um, You know, it was really sort of uh, the thing that got Cornyn off dead center and to really start moving on this deal. Um, Well, this is very interesting. Just today, several developments that we'll talk about here. Uh, The mayor in Uvalde, uh, Don McLaughlin is pushing back on this report that was issued earlier this week uh, from Texas State University. They have a training center there for law enforcement. It's called the Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Program. They put out a report that said something that just got national news uh, really buzzing about the latest on Uvalde. And the claim in the report was that, I'm gonna make sure I get this right, claim in the report was that a local officer, when they showed up, as this gunman was getting ready to go into the school and kill all those kids and those teachers, that there was an officer who had a shot at him, that he saw him and could have taken a shot and killed the shooter, but didn't because he didn't get permission to do so. Now, that would be against all the training in the United States for the last two decades, right? If you have an active shooter at a school and you see him as an officer, you kill them. Yep. Right. There's no question. And you don't wait for orders. You just do it. Right. I mean, that's been the case since 23 years ago in Columbine when that wasn't the policy that everybody, you know, went with. So um, this was very disturbing to people. And I saw NPR, ABC, NBC, CBS, Washington Post, New York Times, all of them picked this up 
that you have this officer who was basically derelict and didn't kill the bad guy. You know, if you have this narrative, Jeremy, that you got to have the good guy with the gun show up to take out the bad guy with the gun. If, if you make that person into a hero, if they don't do that, the inverse would be that they're a villain, right? If, if it's all on this one person. So a couple things to know about that report. One, it's not as if it's some independently sourced review by the school. The way they got their information, and it's this is in the report, the way they got their info was it was a one-hour briefing. As my understanding, was led by DPS. Well, DPS and the director there, Steve McCraw, as you know, testified in the Texas Senate about the timeline of events that unfolded that day in Uvalde. Um, and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick pointed to this new report as corroboration of what DPS had testified to. But what Patrick didn't say is that DPS is the one who gave the folks who issued the report their information. <laughs> so it's not corroborating anything. It's just DPS again saying a lot of the same stuff and then adding this accusation that a local cop did not shoot the bad guy when he had a chance. Well, the mayor of Uvalde is disputing that report and in fact said, and look, there's finger pointing all around. What I have been cautioning people on with this, especially people in our own industry, is to don't report any of this uncritically. Right. I mean, you got to ask a lot of questions. You can't just take this report and say, OK, well, this is the end all be all. This is what happened because it doesn't look like it. The mayor of Uvalde took issue with the report from that training center at Texas State University that claimed a local cop had, had a chance to kill the gunman. The mayor said that was flatly untrue. What the report says is, quote, a reasonable officer would have considered this an active situation and devised a plan to address the suspect. But the mayor said, quote, no Uvalde Police Department officer saw the shooter on May 24th prior to him entering the school. No Uvalde police officers had any opportunity to take a shot at the gunman. Pretty direct contradiction. And he went on to say in a statement, quote, ultimately, it was a coach with children on the playground that the officer saw, not the shooter. All right. So, so you had all of these folks reporting that this officer saw the shooter and could have taken him out. Now the mayor's office says, actually, that was basically the PE coach, and he would have been shooting that person at the school. So everybody has to slow down. The mayor was on CNN saying that all of this is a cover-up by the DPS. He took direct aim at Steve McCraw, the director at DPS, as he was being interviewed there on the network. I think it's a cover-up on, uh, on DPS. McGraw. They're covering up. McGraw's covering up for, for who? For maybe his agencies or, you know, maybe he told the story he told that, you know, it's hard, you know, what do they say? The, the, it's always hard when you tell a lie. Do you have to keep telling a lie? I'm not saying he's lying. Maybe he was misled with the information. But he, he hasn't got. changed his story, right? No, Since but that also, Friday, he did, and then he did the Senate hearing. Yeah, and I think that which was, which was, which was even more, he was even more emphatic about Chief Arredondo being the man who was responsible for everything here, blaming everything on him. Well, again, I, you know, you know, every agency in that hallway is going to have to share the blame. And like I said, again, I'll go back to when have you ever seen a federal or state law enforcement officer take right. their cues from local law enforcement? It's a very good point he made there at the end, which is, you know, the, the folks who are with the state level police almost never take orders from the people at the local level. I mean, when would that 
ever happen. In the meantime, I read from quorumreport.com, DPS told Representative Dustin Burroughs, who is leading the Texas House investigation of this, that the DPS said that they would not release a copy of the video footage from the school hallway from that day. In a letter to Chair Burroughs, uh, DPS said release of the video would provide greater transparency to the public, but they cited concerns from the Uvalde District Attorney. The agency said that uh, because of concerns from the DA, they would not release the video at this time. Um, there is so much finger pointing going on here, Jeremy. And as you have pointed out in the past and got pretty passionate about it at one point, think of what's going on with the families there in Uvalde. We all see this from hours away in Austin or San Antonio or Houston or wherever. Right there in the community, they have they still. When did that happen? I mean, this is a while ago now. And they still don't have a clear idea of what happened. And, I, and I, I'm still racking my brain thinking about any other situation I've ever covered in a quarter century of doing you know, broadcast and print news in this state. And I'm thinking about any time that this much time had gone by and we still don't have a clear idea of exactly what happened. And then at the same time, have state leadership, including the lieutenant governor, saying that, oh, here's the end all be all report. Y'all ought to just read this and and that's good enough. Yeah, it's amazing how many. It's not just the contradictions have got to be, you know, you know, insane for the folks for the nineteen families who had to bury their children to not hear anything about, you know, what is the real story? What what happened that day? You know, it's just like and just to not have that information. Like I just feel for them. You know, it's like they're like you know beyond all the other stuff is like you got 19 families who are completely devastated, and the idea that like there's this finger pointing and some politics going on maybe, and you know it's like is DPS covering to make sure the state doesn't get blamed for this? Is the local mm -hmm. guys you know defending the local? Is this like you know cops you know? you know, fighting over territory. It's like all that stuff just shouldn't matter right now. Right. You know, but here it is. It just, right. it's just clouding all of this. And it's like taking away from like, again, like think of these 19 kids and the, the two teachers and like, let's not forget about all of that. You know, it's like, it's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like required that I, I would hope that, you know, more people would just kind of take a look at the people and the faces of those who we lost that day. Yeah, and yet there has been this ongoing war against local government waged by Governor Abbott ever since he entered office back in 2015. And it, it, I, I think about the real-world consequences of that. If you go back um, 15 years or so, I thought, you know, I was thinking about uh, Governor Rick Perry, who's a you know, Republican, um, and the mayor of Houston at the time, Bill Wyatt, a Democrat, working hand-in-hand hand closely to make sure people were safe and taken care of and evacuations could be made ahead of uh, major uh, storms on the Gulf Coast, hurricanes, disasters, bad situations. It was always the understanding that the state and local government would work together in those situations to try to come up with the best result for everybody. Because at the end of the day, um, all of the people in those communities are represented by all of the people that I yeah. just mentioned. Right. I mean, they, they voted for the governor. They were voted for, you know, for their opponent, but they voted in that race. And they're certainly all Texans. Um, and now it's just this ongoing strife all the time between the state and the local governments when it comes to taxes, when it comes to the way their police budgets are run, when it comes to um, a whole host of issues. I mean, at one point, Greg Abbott even proposed um, not allowing cities to be able to uh, create their own ordinances for tree pruning. I mean, he's, he's trying to micromanage cities all the way down to that level. 
And my point is that because there is all this strife, this is this is one of the natural consequences of that is that none of these people are working together, right? To your point, mean, folks are pointing fingers. Nobody wants to take the blame for what happened here. How about take the responsibility for what happened? Because all of you folks who are running these uh, these communities and running the state, you are accountable to everybody in Uvalde, Houston, Austin, DFW, San Antonio, the Valley, all the way up to Wichita Falls, every place in between. Um, you owe those people good, solid leadership and to tell them the truth. Yeah, Sadly, I don't think we're going to get a full story of what the heck happened until the feds do their report. If you remember, the Justice Department agreed that they would do an you know, after action report on just kind of what happened. Mm-hmm. It feels like that's going to be our first chance to have somebody who's not in this, you know, city versus state fight to just kind of like, hey, right. this is what we saw. This is what we did when we tallied it all up. And this is what happened. Of course, who knows if they're being all tell, told the truth either? You know, clearly there's a lack, mm-hmm. you know, it, either the mayor or DPS, you know, somebody's not telling us something right. You know, somebody's hearing something different from the other because they're just contradictory stories at this point, And I don't get it. I don't understand how like anything about this can be contradictory at this point. It either happened or it didn't happen. There was either, you know, a cop there who could, you know, fire on, like a, uh, mm-hmm. the, the assailant or not, you know, it's like there shouldn't be any gray area. And why can't we just like clear that up? I can't believe we're sitting here six, seven weeks after the shooting and I still don't know what happened. Yeah. And I'm not going to move on from this before just saying this one last thing. Those agencies and the Texas Department of Public Safety in particular, which has been uh, allocated more than $6 billion in recent years to secure South Texas the border area. Um, They have body cam video of what happened that day that we have not seen. They have radio communication traffic that we have not heard. And they have fought to keep people from getting that stuff. And as you heard uh, just a little while ago, they're also not allowing the surveillance video of the hallway to be released that day. There were 91 officers from DPS on scene that day. And we heard all these stories I saw it in national news, Wall Street Journal, some other places about uh, the fact that the radios weren't working. We heard the story about how the uh, the police chief for the school district didn't have his radio with him. But there was also information about how the radios were not working well that day between police agencies. And it got me to going back into my notes, Jeremy. It was in 2014. And, and this is about priorities and I think misplaced priorities. It was in 2014. Then Governor Rick Perry moved money about $40 million out of a special fund that is designed to bolster police radio infrastructure. He moved $40 million out of that fund for what? Can you guess what he moved it out for? It was for, quote, border security. So we have, in this state, moved all sorts of resources to the border and specifically given it to DPS, the very agency, which is right now not releasing their body cam video not releasing their radio traffic from that day. And if they want us all to know and to have a clear picture of exactly what went down, they could do that tomorrow. They, they could do it today. They could do it this afternoon. And they're not. For whatever reason, they're not doing it. They'll say it's an ongoing investigation, all that stuff. They could do it right now. Now, the fight over abortion, as we talked about previously, is so far from over. I had 
Um, I had some folks thinking that, you know, this is, this is the last thing, right? And as we pointed out on the last show, no, there's always more to come on this. President Biden, just today, signed an executive order in Washington aimed at protecting abortion rights. He said the Supreme Court, quote, exercised raw political power by overturning Roe versus Wade. But of course, he did acknowledge that in places like Texas, where we have the laws that we have, he can't get much done for protecting abortion rights through an executive order. And in a number of these states, the laws are so extreme, they've raised the threat of criminal penalties for doctors and healthcare providers. They're so extreme that many don't allow for exceptions, even for rape or incest. Let me say it again. Some of the states don't allow for exceptions for rape or incest. This isn't some imagined horror. It's already happening. He said some states, of course, that would include the great state of Texas. West Texas Congressman Jody Arrington says he's working on a bill right now to ban abortion everywhere in the United States, not just in those states that are uh, led by Republicans. I'd like to introduce it. I'm working on it actually right now to take the, the, the state of Texas law, which basically uh, pro prohibits abortion, except in the situation where the mother's life is at risk. So where there is the scenario of life for life, I think that's appropriately delegated to to the to the woman, to the family in consultation with their pastor and doctor, etc. Um, I'd like to have that the law of the land. I, I think that is the ideal for me. But I also understand and respect and I also support the decision that the Supreme Court made, which is until such time there is legislation that passes uh, the, the uh, legislative body at the federal level, then we delegate it to the states. Now, this is what conservatives had said about this for a long time, was that Roe versus Wade was incorrectly decided, and this should be a decision for the states. Now, according to Congressman Arrington and others, he's not the only one saying that there should be a national ban on abortion now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Uh, that argument's off the table, Jeremy. I don't hear them saying that as much, that it ought to be left up to the states. Now it's that, hey, if you are a woman in Texas and you are seeking an abortion, they don't think you should be able to travel to another state. I don't see any efforts at uh, banning people from going to Las Vegas to gamble which is illegal in Texas. I don't see anybody pushing a bill uh, to prohibit people from traveling to Colorado to smoke pot, even though that's illegal in Texas. But on abortion, we're going to shut down the border. And as some uh, women online had uh, had suggested to me, maybe uh, when they're crossing over the state line or going to the airport to enforce this, maybe they could show them their uh, feminine sanitary products and say, hey, not pregnant. I can leave. I mean, this is the level of micromanagement of the government in your life. Now, some of the most powerful Democrats in Texas, that's the way I consider it, the district attorneys in the big cities, like in Bear County, for example, the DA, Joe Gonzalez says, they're not going to prosecute these cases. Here to tell the entire community of Bear County that they, not, they don't need to be worrying about whether or not anybody's going to prosecute them for making a decision about their own bodies. Now, D.A. Gonzalez said that at a rally in San Antonio earlier this year after the leak of the uh, abortion decision uh, from the Supreme Court, that uh, audio, by the way, was from reporter Priscilla Aguirre at MySA.com. I hear the folks who are in counties that are Democratic saying what Gonzalez said. And I hear Republicans like Arrington saying things uh, like what he said on this issue 
and they are in areas politically that are safe for them, right? What I don't hear, Jeremy, is people like Governor Abbott saying a whole lot about this uh, at this point uh, on the calendar. It seems like he'd rather talk about other things. Yeah, I think you're right on that. And, and can we just go back to like when Arrington was talking about, you know, exceptions, you know, it's like it makes me yeah. nervous every time I hear Republican men start talking about exceptions, you know, for abortions, because it just sounds so close to him saying, OK, if the woman's going to die, she can have a choice. You know, it's just it's just too close to that. I think they should probably let the women of the Republican Party kind of express those thoughts maybe a little bit more clearly, just so it doesn't sound mm-hmm. as ugly as it almost gets almost every single time but you know that aside it's like yeah does does greg abbott want to talk about this stuff absolutely not you know it's like if you look Mm -hmm. at that polling back from the university of texas we talked about earlier in the show it shows Mm -hmm. that like this issue just is you know even you know with that decision you know coming down the pike everybody knew it was coming you know abortion just barely registers as one of the most important issues in the state for the entire electorate you know the electorate is concerned about you know the economy and the border and everything else after that, you know, it's like, and so, mm-hmm. the, you know, where was Governor Abbott immediately after the border, right? You know, it's like every time right. something happens in the state of Texas, that sounds like it might, you know, be, you know, a big issue on abortion or a big issue, uh, you know, on guns. Where does Greg Abbott go? To the border. <laughs> this time it was Eagle Pass. He runs. You know, he runs yeah, for he the goes border. To Eagle Pass. He, he, he can't get there <laughs> exactly. fast enough. It's like Eagle Pass, Del Rio, whatever. It's like, you know, just get us somewhere. So, you know, going forward here, you just, you know, watch the news. Every time there's something where it looks like there might be some momentum going for, you know, Beto O'Rourke or for the Democrats or for Joe yeah. Biden, I will predict right now that within days, if not hours, <laughs> Greg Abbott will be at the border refocusing the discussion on that because, look, on that issue, they think they have a winner, and the polls seem to suggest they do. Like, keep talking yeah. about the border because people who vote in uh, general elections, you know, are going to care about this. So they certainly care about it according to the polling. Yeah, well, it took him 24 hours to get to Uvalde after the shooting, and it takes an hour to get on the plane down to Harlingen. Abbott did order the DPS and National Guard to return apprehended unauthorized immigrants to ports of entry down on the border. Right to your point, Jeremy, uh, as all this is unfolding, an executive order comes out from Greg Abbott uh, that I don't know if it really changes the legalities of what's going on here. There were some folks on the right who were saying that it was just window dressing from Abbott, that he's saying that DPS has to take these undocumented immigrants down to the border. Um, They want them to deport them. They want them to take them into Mexico. And the uh, the governor's spokesperson uh, pushed back on that and said, well, they, you know, any any of anybody who suggests uh, that we take these folks into Mexico doesn't understand that our own officers would then be risking being arrested themselves by, you know, by trying to do this. Um, I, I, I have seen this pressure campaign on Abbott from the right, right. These people who are more, they would say they're, quote, more conservative than Abbott is. They want him to declare that Texas is being invaded and that certain powers under the Constitution ought to be invoked because we are you know, subject to this invasion. I can tell you that three days on the border last weekend, I ate a lot of great food. There were a lot of drinks involved, a good time in uh, Brownsville, McAllen, South Padre. Everything was just fine, brother. Believe me. They want you to believe it's a war zone down there, and I'd like you to go down there yourself. In fact. Any listener who doubts me 
I'll take you. First drinks on me. So, <clears throat> Dan Patrick on Fox News Channel, of course. Uh, just about, let's see, I think it was two days before Abbott issued this order, he was pressuring Abbott to do something about this, about, about saying that we're being invaded by these people coming in from Mexico. Uh, Patrick talking to Fox News anchor Trace Gallagher about illegal immigration and the Biden administration's response to it. It makes me ill every time yep. I hear it because they're just lying to people. We are being invaded. And, and yep. if we're being invaded under the Constitution, I think that gives us the power to put hands on people and send them back. And put and hands on go people here. and send them back. But we've got to shut go down here, China and Mexico from the labs. Lieutenant Governor, I got to go, but I want quickly gotcha. your opinion on this whole Operation Lone Star yep. thing, because because I want to know what it's like for, for the state of Texas to have to do the federal government's job. Yep. And is this going to benefit this declaration of an invasion? Will it benefit your state? Will it help you? Well, since the United Nations has called this the worst border in the world, it should help us put hands on people uh, and send them back. Hands on people and send them back. He kept saying that we could put hands on people and send them back. Uh, Jeremy, People have to forgive me on this. When I first saw the video of Patrick saying that, I didn't think much of it. And in fact, I wasn't even going to play it during the show. And you know how much I love to talk about the lieutenant governor and you know his latest rantings and ravings on Fox News Channel. Most of the time, we even introduce him with the Fox News Channel music so that, so that the listener gets the full effect. This time, I didn't even think to do that because I saw his comments and... It just seemed like this kind of stuff he says all the time. It, there's, there's a normalization that's happening with this kind of rhetoric. But as somebody pointed out to me, and we've, and we've made this point previously on the show, some of the things that come out of the mouth of Patrick, in some cases Greg Abbott, Don Huffines, Alan West, when these folks talk about the border and the, and the immigration situation, a lot of it sounds like the manifesto left behind by the guy who drove from Allen, Texas to El Paso to go hunt Mexicans, right? Same kind of hateful rhetoric from these folks. At what point is it sort of like ashing your cigarette on the gas nozzle at the gas station while you're filling up your car and just standing there and going, what, what could be the worst? You, you know, what, what could happen? What, what could possibly go wrong here? Um, continuing to pour kerosene on the fire of these people who are so unhinged about immigration. I saw where uh, the mayor of uh, San Antonio, Ron Nuremberg, called out Patrick and called it fear-mongering immigrant rhetoric. Joaquin Castro, congressman from San Antonio, went further. He said, quote, Dan Patrick is an out-of-control bigot who's going to get people killed with his rhetoric, close quote. Uh, I would say the problem with Patrick is he's in control, not that he's out of control. This is what, and, and, and I know that sounds maybe flippant, but this is the, I'm telling you, this is the kind of rhetoric that works in Texas as the electorate is currently constructed. Let me give you one other example. I've been watching this for years, and I think you're not wrong, Jeremy, when you say, hey, Texas Republicans used to have a very different attitude about all this stuff. But I've been watching it for at least 15 years. This is the kind of thing that Congressman John Culberson, former representative from Houston, would do. Ted Poe, another former congressman from the Houston area, they would do these uh, these trips to the border and they would hope that they would get media coverage and conservative talk radio stations would cover it. Uh, I worked at one of those stations years ago in Houston. They'd go down to the border, talk about how horrible it all is. Chip Roy doesn't have to beg anybody to cover what he's doing because of technology, right? 
everybody has a camera crew right in their pocket. So he goes down to the border. He's in Eagle Pass. And uh, Roy recorded this video talking about the plight of the illegal immigrants, as he put it, as they're coming right across the border there. Here in the Del Rio sector, I know today, I mean, gosh, we're going to have close to 500 in this group alone. So uh, this is the reality of, of uh, life here in South Texas, life along the border. It's terrible for the migrants. Uh, just talked to him about selling their worldly possessions, having to pay the cartels to come here. Uh, like I said, just uh, talked about uh, families, kids, people who are dehydrated. Uh, and obviously, we just have so many uh, deaths and bodies that we find all over South Texas. But uh, this is why we've got to do something about it. This is why it's an invasion. It's an invasion not of these people who want a better way of life. It's an invasion by the cartels who are exploiting them for profit and exploiting our national security. So There are legitimate points to be made about border security, of course. Uh, the fact is that it's an important function of the federal government. But the fact is this as well. The border has essentially been sealed for the kind of immigration that would happen before 9-11. Uh, uh, before 9-11, what would happen in Texas is we had uh, the benefit of what uh, economists call an elastic workforce. So when it comes to construction jobs, when it comes to agricultural jobs, uh, people could come into Texas uh, from Mexico and they could work here. And when the job was done, they could go back to Mexico. After 9-11, the border was secured so well that they can't do that anymore. So they come in and they stay. That's one thing that happens. Um, the other thing that happens is that because the border has been so militarized, the only people who can move undocumented immigrants through the region are people who are similarly um, equipped, and that would be the drug cartels. So that they are also equipped like a military, right? They have the same kind of firepower, same kind of weaponry. And so the short version of all that is that the border is so secure that the average person who just wants to come in and work can't come. The people who can come are the ones who are, you know, loaded for bear and are a real danger to people here in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. If you if you talk to people in the home builder associations or, you know, with the roofing you know, con construction people, like they want us to reform the immigration system to make it easier for them to have workers come in and go back and what, what have you. But we have made that conversation impossible to have. You know, not just in Texas, but nationally, like we can't even talk about it anymore, which is like, you know, really hurting a lot of businesses. So how do you get those workers? You know, good question. Well, and, and, and just circle back real quick to the, you know, the, the you know, mm -hmm. you know, the, the comments that people are making about like, you know, you know, sending people back, you know, you know, declaring an invasion, all that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, Governor Abbott, you know, having been a, a lawyer and a judge himself, you know, has, you know, said he mm -hmm. researched this and he can't really do what they want. It's like, you know, he got up right. as close to the to the line as he could in his statements this past mm -hmm. week. But like he he knows he can't tried to expel people on his own because, you know, he himself, like we were at an event in San Antonio, I want to say like a month or two ago, uh, where he mm -hmm. was, he was, we asked him about that as reporters. And he said, you know, look, the federal government has jurisdiction on immigration law. We can't deport people. And like you said, it's, right. it, you know, he, you know, he said it at the time too, which is we're putting our police and our DPS and our national guard people at risk if they start trying to do that. You know, like you said, like if you're trying to like, how do you put somebody on the other side of the border without you two being on the other side of the border? 
you know, doing it. It's mm-hmm. like you are now in a foreign country dropping off people, which makes you maybe a smuggler of humans. <laughs> you know, it's just like it's just it all depends on who's making the call, right? You know, and so like he, you know, he knows he'd be putting his law enforcement in jeopardy of legal ramifications, you know, both in the U.S. and in Mexico if he were to go through with this. So he's trying to be the cooler head. And here you have the lieutenant governor saying, do it. You know, it's like he's heard Abbott say this stuff. And yet, like, you know, he's Mm -hmm. giving Abbott no cover on this. And I'm kind of surprised that he's not giving at least a little bit of a room for Abbott to not do something that is clearly illegal. Yeah, and Abbott was not doing this specifically. He was doing a whole bunch of other things on the border, but not doing this uh, when the people who were calling for it were his former opponents in the governor's race on the Republican side. Don Huffines, Alan West, entertainer Chad Prather, all these guys uh, had been asking for a version of this, right? But he didn't do it until Patrick said that he should do it, um, which I find interesting. And I, I go right back to the Republican convention in Houston, something that I picked up on. I think maybe you did as well. We both listened to way too many speeches at that deal and, and a lot of debates about some really insane things. <laughs> um, but the fact is, Patrick, in his speech to the Republican convention, he was the only one who said a version of this that I heard. Um, he said, look, there may have been some, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, there may have been some bitter fights in the primaries. And he was obviously referring to the the gubernatorial primary. Some nasty fights in that primary. But now, as Republicans, it's time for all of us to come together and unite to beat the Democrats. I didn't hear that from anybody else on stage. If it it happened, I missed it. He was certainly the most prominent person to do that at the convention. Um, At the same time, you had the governor avoiding the convention altogether. You had Ken Paxton attacking John Cornyn. Senator Cruz sort of attacking Cornyn as well. Republicans doing something that I haven't seen in all my years of covering this stuff, which is getting through their primary and then not really coming together. They're still fighting with each other. It, it, it used to be it would be you know more kumbaya after the primary was over with, right? We're all Republicans here, right? They look at each other and say, yeah, we're, we're all Republicans. I remember that that thing happened during the primary and you said this about my mother and whatever else, but we're Republicans and we're all going to come back together. And they're not doing that. And I think it is interesting if you have a race, let's let's just for sake of discussion, if you have a race that's a five or six point race, which is what we've seen in several polls now, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, and you start to get the Republican vote depressed because there are enough of them who think Abbott's not conservative enough. And they're thinking that because they're hearing it from leaders in the party, right, and people that they voted for in the primary. Um, I think that starts to make it a much more interesting contest in November. And I would point people to a fascinating book. I've I've probably mentioned it before here on the show. It's called The Blueprint. Uh, It's about the uh, Colorado Democratic Party's efforts to flip the legislature there back in 2004, which they did do uh, with the help of a bunch of different allied organizations. One of the things that happened when Democrats won in Colorado, and you remember, uh, Jeremy, 2004 was a good year for Republicans everywhere else, right? President Bush was winning re-election. Republicans were winning in state houses and all that. Uh, but in Colorado, they flipped it and uh, to the Democrats. And one of the reasons is that a lot of these groups that I would say are analogous to Empower Texans and Texas Right to Life here, here in our state, a lot of groups like that, the conservative enforcement groups, were still attacking Republicans as insufficiently conservative all the way to November. And I can imagine that Don Huffines, 
Alan West, Jonathan Stickland with his Defend Texas Liberty Pack and all of that, they will also be doing that. And not just saying that Abbott is not conservative enough. In Colorado, those groups were spending money on mail pieces and advertisements all the way up to November saying that these Republicans were not conservative enough. If you're Greg Abbott and you're his consultant, Dave Carney, that's the kind of thing that has to really worry you if we get into a competitive election going into November. Well, and I would take it one step further, like it's it, it kind of dovetailing off of what you know Dan Patrick was telling that crowd uh, it, later on in that speech. He says, you know, if, if Beto O'Rourke were, were to come close to winning or winning, you know, the governor's race, all of the other statewide Republicans are toast. You know, it's like, and, and the reason he says that, like, you know, remember this: there is no U.S. Senate race on the ballot. There is no competitive congressional race on the ballot anywhere in the state of Texas. The only reason right. as a Republican you're going out to vote is because, one, it's your civic duty, and two, to you know, to vote for Greg Abbott. He is the main reason you're going out. You're not going to vote on the comptroller. You're not going out. You know, I really got to make sure, you know, Sid Miller you know, remains the agriculture commissioner. Those aren't driving the right. electorate. The entire the whole ball of wax this time is one thing. There's no Ted Cruz. There's no you know, it is just mm -hmm. Greg Abbott. Greg Abbott has to pull those people you're talking about, the Don Huffine, all those voters who voted for Huffines and West, he has to pull those people over. And that's what Dan Patrick is talking about. We need to get all those people to over. And I I, mm -hmm. I, I talked to Dan uh, to uh, uh, Don Huffines, you know, at that convention, and I gave him every opportunity to say, look, I don't like Greg Abbott, you know, uh, but in the end, we have to all come together. I kind I was trying to set him up to say something to that end and, and it never came you know it's like he pretty much said it's like we're tired of having to you know hold our nose and vote for people we don't want you know was his answer to me and so you get the sense that like abbott still has work to do on his right flank and that is not mm -hmm. where you want to be going into an electorate that look texas is just more competitive if there's one thing these polls have shown us they're more competitive than they were four years ago. I'm not saying we're about to flip over, you know, Democratic or not. I'm telling you, we're closer. And you can't just yep. write off uh, parts of the electorate like you used to maybe be able to do in the in in a Republican mm -hmm. world. But now it's like you're at risk if you can't get that base of your Republicans out and you have independents walking away from you, as this polling has shown for Abbott. You have two uh, you have a two front war. If there's one thing we learned, you can't have a two front war in war or politics. You know, it's, it's like you just can't do it. It's like he has to be able to focus on either pulling in independence or just working on his base. And he's now left in the spot where he might have to kind of work on both ends a little bit. Yeah, right. And you, what you said about uh, talking to Huffines reminded me uh, that the way that different factions within the Republican Party think about this, uh, the way they think about it is different. Um, Huffines will not say, yeah, I'm going to support Greg Abbott. Do you remember Jerry Patterson, the former land commissioner in 2018, saying about Ted Cruz? And, and I would say that Patterson, even though he's rock rib conservative and all that, but he's more of the old guard, you know, Bush style uh, Republicans. Uh, I, I, would, I hate to call him establishment. He's not in office anymore, but he's, he's more from that, from that uh, part of the party. When it came to Cruz, what Jerry Patterson said was that he absolutely went into the voting booth, voted for Cruz, then came out and stuck his finger down his throat and threw up because he's not thrilled with Cruz, 
But he said, Bet we cannot have Beto O'Rourke as a liberal Democrat in office. Well, somebody like Huffines or Alan West may not ever say anything like that about Abbott, right? They may never come out and go, you know what? Beto is so terrible. I don't like Abbott, but I'm going to support him anyway. We'll get all the way through November and they'll still be saying Abbott is terrible. So to your point, that two front war, it's what he may have to wage. And Abbott has the resources to do that. He's going to be out there with, you know, $20 million at least of, uh, you know, radio, television, digital advertising. He, among all the other Republican nominees uh, for different offices in the state, he'll have the most robust field operation, yes. uh, which, of course, the Democrats this time around uh, are not seeding the field on that. So how all of that works out, and that's, you know, when I say field operation, dear listener, that's the people who come to your door knocking uh, on the door to talk to you about, hey, I'm here to tell you about Beto O'Rourke, or hey, I'm a, a young Republicans here to talk to you about Greg Abbott. Are you voting in this election? They usually have a voice yeah. call. They're, they're nice. They're nice. I'll bring them some water. It's hot. They're walking around in Texas. Uh, and we'll cover all of that as the campaign unfolds. If you enjoy this show, which is now concluded, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcast. We don't judge you. Give us the best rating that you can. That's how you can judge us. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, HoustonChronicle.com, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>